Matthew Baldy reports. With me is my good friend and fellow co-host, Joe Bitts, who's a Marine Corps veteran, just like me. Joe served in Iraq. I served two tours in Afghanistan and one to Iraq. And what we're talking about is, which is big in the news, is the conflict in Afghanistan with the emerging evacuation of all Americans, with the deadline set for the 31st of August that all U.S. forces must be out of Afghanistan. That is a hard and fast red line set forth by the Taliban. Now, in a previous segment that we did, we talked about the current crisis in Afghanistan, but I think what is lost since the beginning of this, because after the Americans finally do leave on the 31st, the 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 blame game will begin. Both sides are going to blame everybody else. The Biden administration is going to blame the Trump administration. Trump administration is going to blame the current administration of Joe Biden. When there were four presidents having to deal with this crisis in Afghanistan after 9-11, and President Biden has been part of that discussion from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So it there's no – everybody has to be take the blame on this, and we need to look objectively. Anthony Cordesman from the Centers for Strategic International Studies did a, a report he published yesterday when he stated when we finally do this – are we going to be in, take an objective lesson mm-hmm. to what? How did we get to this set, this situation where we find ourselves? Because unlike Iraq, everybody's pointing fingers. We should have done this. It was your fault. I didn't like politicians are politicians. I didn't. I voted for it, but I didn't think we were going to go in just so they absolved themselves on the vote. But even in the military, when I first joined the the Marines in 1982. A lot of the, my senior Marines were from Vietnam, and they all blamed the political leaders for losing the war. As I studied the Vietnam War, there was a combination of political mistakes by the Johnson administration, but there was also military mistakes. And if you read H.R. McMaster's book, Dereliction of Duty, he highlights the mistakes, the strategic mistakes by the, the chairman, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the various military commanders. Even including General Westmoreland, who put together a strategy that was better suited for fighting the Russians on the Fulda Gap in Eastern Europe than fighting a counterinsurgency or an insurgency in Vietnam. When you rank worst presidents ever, aside from our current administration, because the presidency is not over yet, who would you say the worst is? It all depends how you look at it. When they rank a president, if you take the partisanship out of it, you got to look at what did the president, what strengths did the president have? Mm-hmm. What did they face while they were in office? And what did they do while they were there? What was the political dynamics while they were there? So in the modern era, well, which is the post-World War II era, a couple, two presidents' stock went up after they left office. Mm-hmm. One was President Truman. He left office with an approval rating of 23%. And a lot of that had to do with a stalemate in Korea. And then in 1951-52, there was a massive corruptional scandal that he was not really tied to, but it affected his administration. Mm-hmm. And I think people were tired of the stalemate in Korea. But he's now looked as a near-great president because of what he faced 
he came in, he ended the world, the end of World War II, he established NATO, the Marshall Plan. President Eisenhower was looked at as a caretaker president. He came after the bombastic and fiery Harry Truman, and he was bookend by the his replacement, which was President John F. Kennedy, who was very charismatic, young, and enthusiastic. But as time went on, as people understood his presidency, he's looked at as now one of the, the great presidents because of all the crises he kept America out of, especially in foreign policy. But like for you, Carter goes up there, right? Goes down as one of the worst presidents because he was overwhelmed at the job. Yeah. You had high inflation, high unemployment, high interest rates. Then you had the car, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, the, the, the hostage crisis, yeah. the oil. So he really takes a beating. Obviously you have Richard Nixon, he takes a beating. Ronald Reagan, detractors would give him positive or negative, but he restored America, got the American economy back again. Yeah. Think about it. In 1983, he had 7% growth in that year. Yeah. That's the highest growth rate. We, we haven't seen that kind of growth rate since. Yeah. So the reason why I'm like maybe touching on this is because Joe is doing this really quick to prove himself as not the greatest president. He, if everything keeps going, he's going to be considered one of the worst. But what's going to be left of America? That's the thing we don't know. If Joe Biden is going to be, if everything keeps going with the economy, high inflation, the um, foreign policy. Because the one thing that doomed Carter was the economy was the biggest issue going into the 1980 presidential election. Uh But then the final kicker, the icing on the cake, was the hostage crisis. And then when we did the Iranian hostage, the attempted Iranian hostage rescue in May of 1980, bombed on the desert floor. And then when they saw bodies of Americans dragged through the street, that was one step too far for America. Yeah. Because it just seems like I said, Joe's kind of approaching that territory. And it was just like, I don't know about you, but we talked about this in a previous podcast, but it's just, so where do you stand on like Afghanistan? Should we be here or should we not? But see, this goes back to the media. All through the 2020 election, they just, they asked vague questions uh-huh. and the media never challenged President Biden on his his past decisions. Because remember, he's been, even before he became uh, vice president, he was either the chairman or the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Yeah. So he got all the same intelligence and he b- made bad decisions all this time, but they never challenged him on why should we trust you on Afghanistan when you were the ones who put us in there in the first. So that's never come up. So a lot of these decisions he's going to have to make. And it seems like he says the buck stops with me, but last week and then this week, he's even yesterday, he just always blames somebody else. When these are his decisions. Yeah. Well, and then also, I guess they, when they say that the, he's accounted for every possible situation, that's also going to bury him as well. But would Admiral Kirby, the press spokesman for the Department of Defense, said we war gamed all contingencies. Now they do, just for our listeners, they do war games many different ways. They do it with physical troops and equipment. And a lot of times they war game things through computer simulation. And one of the one of the contingencies they came up with was once the American military left, they war gamed a situation for them going back in to rescue Americans. Uh-huh. 
doing a NEO, which is a non-combatant operation. Yeah. But they never envisioned at this level where the Balgram Air Base is closed. They had to go into Kabul. I've been to Kabul. Yeah. It's a city of about 5 million people. When you've got the airport brushed up against the city, so it's very un, it's not a very good defensible situation. Every military commander knows when you do military operations, you have to factor in terrain. Now, people, I think, or I, I just want to make sure, and then because this is coming from you, your information is reliable because you have multiple sources. The support terrorism organizations like ISIS and Al Qaeda. But are they deemed a terrorist organization, or are they just are they just the tribe that's running the show? They're both. They're deemed a terrorist organization, and they're a semi quasi government. Now, right now, the, the Taliban supports Al Qaeda, and the Taliban in ISIS K. They call it ISIS K in Afghanistan and parts of Pakistan. They don't. So they don't. There's a there's a hatred between ISIS and the Taliban, and the reason is. The Taliban takes their authority. They're more of a nationalist. They just want to stay in Afghanistan, make it a nationalist government going by Sharia law. Mm -hmm. The Taliban, excuse me, they get their jurisprudence from Islamic law. They mainly follow that Wahhabist version uh, that's found in Saudi Arabia. That's very harsh. Take it, go by the literal translation and want to take Sharia law back to that time period. Mm -hmm. But there's still members of Islam, and you don't turn someone over to an infidel, which is Muslim or non, someone who doesn't adhere to the Islamic faith. So there's a lot like, uh, there's a lot of um, carnage and maybe unrest, but it's only within Afghanistan and their own citizens with the Taliban, nothing with Americans. No, the Taliban stays inside its country. The ISIS and Al-Qaeda, they go worldwide. They want to extend, especially Al-Qaeda, even ISIS, they want the world an Islamic world. Has terrorism kind of been, I wouldn't say on the men, but maybe dormant for a little bit because of COVID? Well, for traveling, for terrorists to travel, because everybody has been locked down, it's a running joke that terrorists have said, don't go to Europe because you're going to catch coronavirus. Yeah. But even before that, terrorism has pretty much been centered around the Middle East, obviously. But then there's been isolated. There's been instances in Europe, mm-hmm. um, the United States. We had the Pulse shooting. You had the, the situation in San Bernardino. But the big fear is with the, the $80 billion of military equipment the Taliban have, ISIS is getting to some of that as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, ISIS, um, Al-Qaeda. I'm not sure what ISIS has, how much is going to be shared or what, what they have on all that. But the... Afghanistan will be a breeding ground, and the fear is that this will spread because this is going to galvanize other Islamic terror groups because they know, and the Taliban can rightfully say, we defeated the United States, even though they never defeated the United States on the battlefield. It doesn't matter. When, Like a friend of mine who served in Iraq and Afghanistan said, when you pull your flag down and leave and the enemy puts their flag up, mm-hmm. that's not a victory. So... Terrorism, it's just a matter of time. And then you've got September 11th looming on the horizon. It's going to be a propaganda victory for the Taliban and other international terror organizations that they stunted and defeated the United States. Because mm-hmm. that was the, that's what the Al-Qaeda said about Russia. We defeated Russia. We collapsed the Russian the country of the Soviet Union, even though we know there was many other reasons. But in their thinking... 
they collapsed the harder of the two superpowers. We were the weaker vessel because we couldn't stand to take losses and we would give up. Like they said in, or one of the Taliban members said, or some of the Al-Qaeda members, you have a watch. We have the time. It's just a matter of time before you give up. Yeah, and that, that's what I think we knew what we were we should have, I think we knew what we were getting into, especially getting, especially going over to Afghanistan. You know, when a superpower like Russia it couldn't handle it. The problem is, I don't think we knew what we were getting into. Everybody said that the, Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. Mm-hmm. Because starting from the Persians to Alexander to the Mongols to the British, the Russians, everybody failed in Afghanistan right. and left with the tails between the legs. But the problem is, Everybody repeated the mistakes of the previous empire, meaning they tried to put a formalized government that was alien to the Afghan tribal system into Kabul. It never worked. So why not stay in Afghanistan maybe as a outpost or just like a base where not only can we maybe help out or not even help out Afghanistan, but monitor Afghanistan. We're in spitting distance of Pakistan. We have, can keep our eyes out on China and on Russia. So we're like in a, like a strategic area. So why not just not, you know, I don't want to say tuck tail and run because it wasn't their decision, but it was our administration's decision to just pick everything up and leave. Why not just stay there? That was the decision many military generals wanted. They wanted to stay, keep a small footprint, two to 3,000 troops, We can do counterinsurgency operations. We can keep a monitor on terror groups. We can assist the Afghan military. That means the contractors would be there so we can help support them, which then they can support the the Afghan Air Force and other military equipment, other at the Afghan army, Mm -hmm. and then take it from there. Now, if we did that, which I agreed we should have done that, but the strategy had to meaning quit stop focusing on the national government and focus on the regional tribal level, but you had to do a change in Afghanistan, I mean, in Pakistan. I talked to a senior military officer at the U.S. Special Operations Command, and he had said exactly that. We should have stayed, but we need to change the strategy, do a 180 on the strategy. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. even when I told him, and he agreed with me, is Pakistan funds these terror organizations. Mm-hmm. They play both sides. They take our money, use it, to fight, to, to, to build their defenses against India, but they also spend money and fund these terror organizations. So we always did it because we didn't want nuclear weapons to fall into the wrong hands, especially terrorist hands. Now that we're leaving, we don't have much leverage anymore and nobody trusts us anymore. Even our NATO allies don't trust us. Exactly. Biden didn't, con- didn't consult them and just precipitately left and left them holding the back. And they don't have the capacity to do it on their own so that they could always work with the Americans. But now they won't because of what we did. And as much as Joe Biden says he's the, the allies were in, in concert of this, they understood this and they agreed that is not that is woefully inaccurate and almost flatly a downplaced lot. How does the administration save themselves from this? They're stuck. Could they just apologize? Be like, hey, Britain, my bad. But see, you can say that we made mistakes. We're sorry. But the damage is done. You pulled out, you left Afghans who were allied with us to the devices of the Taliban. Mm -hmm. And these leaders don't trust us because you didn't consult us. You said 
America's back. We're going to work with our allies. We're going to build trust with our allies. You've done the opposite. You have emboldened China. You've emboldened Russia. You've given $80 billion of weapons to terror organizations. And you forced us and you've threatened our citizens in Afghanistan. They don't trust us and they don't trust this administration. So no matter how much you put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. And you're just, there's just no way around it. And yeah. so the, I think our allies are going to have to wait until 2025 when a new president takes over, if that's the way the American people want to go. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, it's just our current administration's only been in for less than a year. And it just, the, the amount of damage that they have caused our country. It's even greater than that. Remember when they first came in, Anthony Blinken was served in the Clinton administration. You had Secretary, uh, not Secretary, National Security by Jake Sullivan. And then you had General Austin. These were all supposedly senior officials. They were the, supposed to be the best national security team to take over America's foreign policy since the end of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And now they're looked upon as utter failures because when the president says one thing, they're contradicting each other. Yeah. And when you go look at these press conferences, it's just like last week when Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and Secretary Austin were doing a press conference. Someone had asked him, will you be going outside the uh, the airport to gather Americans? And he goes, we don't have that capability. Mm-hmm. We can only secure the airport and the embassy. So no one followed up is, if you don't have that capability, are you going to ask for that capability? Glenn Beck has been raising money for a charity or as a charity organization to get these people planes and get them the heck out of uh, Cabal. Correct. I haven't heard that, but I'm sure there's other groups that are trying to get these people out. Veteran organizations are trying to work with interpreters. I have a friend of mine who I serve with. He worked with a lot of interpreters and he wrote a letter to help his interpreter get out of there. Mm-hmm. So we're in a volatile situation and it's only going to get worse because right now, 400 American military personnel are leaving, and eventually it's just going to be turned over to the, Tur- the Turks to run everything. Mm-hmm. But we're, like Tony Blinken said, if you're left after the 31st, you're, the Taliban will have to guarantee your safety. Okay, wait. You're saying 31st ends, and then it's just, hey, Taliban, those, those people you said you're going to hurt after the 31st, they're reliant, you're reliant on them to get you to safety. And then they were followed up on it by saying, if they harm citizens or Americans, we'll send a strong diplomatic message to the Taliban. There's 140 countries who don't like what's going on. So we'll send a strongly worded message. Someone's getting fired over this, right? That's the point. Nobody gets fired or on this. Somebody's stepping down. Let's look at that. Congress has oversight over that. What was the big issue for Congress that they did yet? They moved along the $3.5 trillion spending package. Every Democrat supported it and every Republican was against it. And Nancy Pelosi today sent out a press statement hailing that as an historic event. So we've got thousands of Americans stuck behind enemy lines. And her focus is this $3.5 trillion spending package. That was divided by party line. But that that means like everything else. Nancy Pelosi and President Biden were trying to get votes, change votes to support that. It's just like when President Biden spoke yesterday on his press conference, the first five, I think, eight minutes, he spoke about how good of a job he was doing. He spoke about the. $3.5 
trillion dollar package that was moved along in the House and the voting rights bill, which is unconstitutional. And if the media did its job, they would find out that they're nationalizing the voting registration rules. Mm -hmm. That's against the Constitution in Article 2, which states all voting requirements are handled by each individual state. Is the Supreme Court going through a lot of the stuff that uh, the Biden administration signed off on and just like squashing it? A lot of the things that the suits, the laws, the legal challenges have brought to the Supreme Court have been overturned because they violate constitutional norms. Now, what about the like Keystone Pipeline? That is going through, and I think they they ruled in a different, I can't remember how they ruled on it. But this one, the voting rights bill, would be ruled unconstitutional because the Constitution is explicit. You don't need to be a constitutional scholar to read that one. Okay, so what if the president is just doing this? What if the president's like, hey, left, what do you want me to do? And then he does it, and then... He lets it go up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court shoots it down. And he looks at the left. He's like, hey, I, I did all I could. Is that, that could be like a, an easy ploy because you and I both know that when the, the House and the Senate are stacked the way they are, it's like a stalemate on all ends because this president is trying to change things, but it's always getting blocked by the, not just the Supreme Court. It's getting blocked by the House or the Senate now that we have a majority. Senate and a majority House, even though it's by one, you know, but it's done by the tiebreaker or vice president, he can put in his best efforts to, to appease the the Democrats or the liberals and the progressives. And then he knows probably it's going to get shot down as soon as it goes to the Supreme Court. But I think is he just maybe playing? Is he just trying to save face? A couple of things. He's beholden to the progressives. I think there was a Faucian deal during the campaign. And many experts have said that. One of them was Victor Davis Hanson of the Hoover Institute, meaning the progressives went to him, don't criticize us for what we're doing in these cities and we'll support you. But in the end, when you win, you got to do our bidding. One of the things that progressives wanted him to do was extend the rental moratorium where renters don't have to pay rent. The Supreme, and he even said, I don't have that authority. The Supreme Court let it expire on the 31st of July. That came from the CDC. That went above the mandate of the CDC. But the CDC came in and be like, oh, by the way, it is extended. But they couldn't do that. The Supreme Court ruled you can't let it expire. If you want to do it, you got to get Congress to do this job. What the progressives are doing is we can just say President Biden is doing it by executive order and blame him mm-hmm. so their members don't have to take a vote. Yeah. So they're just thrashing the and they're blaming what Donald Trump did. They're doing worse than what Donald Trump has ever even dreamed of doing. I just think he wants to say that the Supreme Court is blocking me. So this is why we need to pack the court. So coming up, and I know it's three years away, who do we look for? Are we looking for Trump 2.0 or are we looking for DeSantis? The challengers are going to be, I don't think it's going to be Donald Trump. Because because we need an outsider to come back in here swinging again in order to get, because politi- almost it's almost at this point, I can't trust any politician. And I know it was- Donald Trump will be 78. I think Donald Trump will be a big voice. I don't think he's going to run. I think if Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, wins set re-election in uh, 2022, mm-hmm. I think he has the values of Trump. He has the views of Trump. He doesn't have the baggage of Trump. He's he's married. He's a family man. He's yeah. got small kids. He loves his wife. 
He doesn't attack unless you attack him. Yeah, that's I, think why, I think Trump does all those things too. Yeah, but that's why he doesn't attack unless they attack him. Yeah. That's why the Democrats and the media are going after him. They see him, and most conservative polls show Ron DeSantis far outstrips anybody else. Mm-hmm. But for the Democrats, that's a, a very tough, a tough situation because Joe Biden will be, I think, 81. Kamala Harris is clearly not up for the job. She can't, she can't speak. She doesn't know the issue. So I don't think it's going to be. Okay. So hypothetically, let's just say our president steps down, resigns or gets impeached. All right. And then Kamala steps up into the the president's spot. Who does she pick as a vice president? She would pick someone progressive and it all depends because it's either, they're either old and white or young and progressive. Mm -hmm. So there you go. I'm not sure who she would pick. Yeah. But she, but to, for her to choose somebody, she they would have to be submitted to the House and Senate. They need a by the twenty fifth amendment, you need a majority of both the House and the Senate to confirm that nominee to be vice president. Okay, but if that's before twenty twenty two, then they get it. If it's after, it might be a different well, story. Well, it's not, just, not necessarily because it's evenly split in the House, in the Senate. But she's a tiebreaker, so she, oh, okay. All right, okay, look at that. It's 50-50. So, and it's these kind of things that you should pay attention to the live stream for because John is a plethora of knowledge, always enjoyable once he starts going off. So, John, we've done a couple new things as of uh, recent, and what's the newest thing we've done so far? Started that on Saturday, so you can go to Ubaldi Reports on TikTok and see us, and we're starting to gain some traction. We're doing Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, mm-hmm. and if you go to all three of those, you can type in Ubaldi Reports. If you go to Facebook, go to Ubaldi Reports group, you can see us. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do it on all those platforms, even on TikTok. Or you can go to Ubaldi Reports at gmail.com. That's Ubaldi Reports at gmail.com. And you can check us out from there. All right. And we are we are live streaming. So when we have access to the, the comments or the thread, by all means, ask questions. We'll give you a shout out, whatever. Just we want to keep the conversation going. I like to keep John on his toes. And you guys can help me do that. And everybody, have a great night. Keep listening to Ubaldi Reports.